there, Homer. How's it hanging? Low and lazy. Say, let's take a relaxed attitude toward work and watch the baseball match. The Nye Mets are my favorite squadron. Unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. From our reserve seats high above the evangelical circus, this is a voice of sanity in search of a Jesus-shaped Christianity, sending dispatches from the post-evangelical wilderness to whomever is on the same journey. You are now part of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host, unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading the show. Joining me today is Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How's it hanging, Nathan? I'm doing all right. Also joining us is graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, David Grubbs. David, good to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Our topic today is sports, but before we get to it, uh, there's a few things we need to talk about. First of all, those of you in the know will recognize the words I said at the beginning of the podcast as the ones that the internet monk, Michael Spencer, opened his own podcast with every week. Well, sadly, uh, Michael Spencer died earlier this week of cancer. Um, I know both Nathan and I were big fans of his podcast and blog. I'm less sure about uh, about David Grubbs. Does either of you have anything you'd like to say about Michael Spencer? Uh, I am still working out what I'm going to say, and I am planning to post a- an essay-length thought on Michael Spencer on Friday, so stay tuned. David, were you a fan? Uh, I, I, I got to say that there's, there's no other podcast that I listen to except for CWC and actually I, I finally clicked the link to Christ the Center the other day and I've listened to a few of those things but uh, but but no but okay. I did think it was very interesting and actually kind of gave the lie to what you often hear about internet communities making making human relationships faceless and somehow less human just the amount of real grief that I saw just clicking around, uh, you know, very various theology theology blogs. Um, uh, there, there is a real community there, and and the the people who who listened and interacted really loved this man. And uh, I, I think it gives a lie to a lot of a lot of the nonsense that's said about internet, the internet as a way of building community. I agree, and I'll just say that those of us who do um, theology podcast as we do could do a lot worse than to emulate Michael Spencer. And I'm really going to miss that show. I didn't know, I didn't know him personally. I sent him an email once, a fan letter that he never wrote back to. But uh, he was a busy man, I understand. Um, so rest in peace, Michael Spencer. Well, our own podcast, um, as you might know, is only part of the Christian Humanist Empire, and the other big part is our blog, <laughs> which you can find at christianhumanist.org slash chb. That's uh, Charlie Hotel Bravo. <laughs> this, week, this week, you can go over there and read the second part of Nathan Gilmore's post-series, Bible, Tradition, and Authority, and the 478th part of his series on the lectionary. Um, there's also a variety of Easter stuff. There's a post from David Grubbs on St. Thomas, and then one from me where I just reproduced the text of John Updike, seven stanzas at Easter. So that's what's on the blog. Uh, we did want to remind listeners that we have Christian Humanist merchandise for sale. You can get a beverage holder of your choice featuring the very nice David Grubbs gr- drawing of Martin Luther and the quote with which we close the show each week. Uh, and that's available at zazzle.com slash Christian Humanist. And there's more, well, you more can to link come. to it from our blog. That's right. Well, we got the housekeeping out of the way, so let's dive right in. Nathan, uh, we'll begin this discussion as we begin so many with the personal. Do you have a history playing sports? Well, I have a history of playing sports poorly, actually. Uh, <laughs> I never was very good at many sports except for volleyball. That was the one exception. I couldn't jump very high, but I could throw myself at the ground in ways that let me get underneath spikes. Uh, so my intramural volleyball team at Milligan... Uh, 
tended to win a lot of games, won the championship my senior year. I actually came into my own athletically, and this is uh, pathetic when I think back on it. Actually, when I was in seminary, uh, I <laughs> I ended up rooming with a uh, former uh, varsity baseball player at Milligan College, Dave Pecha, who's still a good friend of mine. And we would go out to Kiwanis Park in Johnson City, Tennessee, sometimes three nights a week, some not, sometimes four uh, and just play a couple hours of basketball a night. And, you know, between the start of seminary and the time I got married, uh, people tell me, I never actually observed myself because I've always been inside my body, uh, that I would get above the rim to get rebounds. Although I always had the mental block, I couldn't even dunk on an eight foot rim. Uh, so, I mean, I've always played pickup sports. I've never played anything organized past fifth grade or so. Uh, David, what kinds of sports did you do? Oh, I have a sad tale of woe. Um, when I was six, I decided that I, w- that I wanted to play basketball on uh, the, uh, the church team, the church boys basketball team. And I got my uniform, which I was very proud of, but it was too big for me because I was about eight inches shorter than the next smallest guy. Um, I showed up for all the practices. I have no idea whether I was good or not. Um, I thought I was because I showed up for practice. And then in the first game, um, my only memory of it is spending most of the game lying on the ground because the kid that I was assigned to defend was a giant. (laughs) And at the end of that game, I decided basketball isn't fun at all. I lied on the floor the whole night. And and yeah, so I never played again. And that that's that's my sad tale of woe. And that's that's pretty much the last story of athletics. Um I had to I had to play basketball for a PE class in college. Uh or not basketball, uh but volleyball for a PE class in college. And I had a pretty decent overhand serve and 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 th- yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, I I eschewed sports after that. After I I basically convinced myself that I was no good at it, and therefore it would be no fun. That's the saddest story I've ever heard, David. <laughs> you you need to, to top it, Michael. You need to hear more sad stories. <laughs> when I was a kid, I played uh, just about every sport except hockey. I was um, you know, I'm from Georgia, and hockey is not really something Georgians play. <laughs> uh, I, I even played soccer, which which must have been just coming to, into its own in uh, in the late 80s in Georgia. And I, I played basketball for several years in a rec league, mostly because my father loves basketball and coached the team, and, and also because I was six foot three in sixth grade. Mm. I wasn't very I good at it. it. <laughs> my father says I was, but I wasn't. I, I got about two points a game, I think. And I, I quit I quit basketball before I started high school, so I, I certainly never tried out for any teams. And I, I kept playing things like church softball, and I was a, I was a pretty good fielder in that, but not much of a hitter. Uh, what, what about now? Do you do you follow any sports? I, I won't pretend any of the three of us get any actual exercise, uh, but but do, do you do you sit at home and watch sports, Nathan? I really haven't since my son was born, uh, and I have reasons for that that I will talk about later in the podcast when that becomes pertinent, but uh, I've, I've watched a grand total of two football games from start to finish since my son was born. Actually, it might be three, because I'm sure when I'm up in Indiana with my family, I'll watch what they're watching, but as far as in my house in Georgia, uh, I've watched the two Super Bowls that the Colts were in, and that is it. David, David, David how about you? wheel um i've been to you one uh one bulldog game in uh the last five years and that's because uh the team invited uh the whichever uh, faculty happened to have football players in their class at the time um i have watched football games um at other people's houses and 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 then uh then it's fun I enjoy watching with someone else who's who's into the game, but also willing to explain to me what's happening, because um, <laughs> because I don't know. Well, and if I can turn it into some kind of a narrative, uh, 
you know, if there's, you know, maybe a player that I can latch on to and he can be my protagonist for the game or something like that, you know, it's, then, then it's interesting, but. Or if you've you got know, Dennis Miller comparing it to Hannibal yeah. Crossing the Alps. Yeah, you, right. I miss, right. I miss Dennis Miller on Monday Night Football, yeah. by the way. A controversial <laughs> but, opinion. Yeah, but left oh, left I to myself too. the only, left to myself the only athletic competition that I ever watch is most most extreme elimination challenge. So you yeah. don't watch the the lumberjack uh, games, David. Uh, what is that on the Ocho? <laughs> it's on. It's somewhere deep in in basic cable. Okay. Well, I um I didn't like watching sports for a long time, mostly because I had drawn some lines about what smart people do and don't do. <laughs> but uh, that, that ended when I was in graduate school and started watching baseball and football again. And now I love both of those. I probably like football more than baseball just because they're the, the you know, football doesn't have 160 games per year. And so it's <laughs> easier to follow football. And um, I, I don't really care about basketball. I don't understand hockey in any way. And I don't, I don't much care about college sports. When you go to an undergraduate school that doesn't really have major teams – you don't really get the intense uh, connection to mm-hmm. your to your college sports that you would otherwise. I mean, I'm I'm kind of nominally a UGA fan. Now that I don't live in Athens anymore, it's uh, harder to keep <laughs> up with. They don't they don't broadcast all the UGA games down here. You might as you might imagine. Strangely enough, huh? <clears throat> so, uh, David, athletics are a nearly universal interest on our planet. Not, not that every human being enjoys them, but every culture that I'm aware of has some sort of sport that they participate in. Uh, it's probably safe to say that worldwide there are far more sports fans than there are readers of serious literature. What do you think the attraction is there? What do sports do for people that art doesn't do? Well, I, I, I guess my first question, um, which it, it would be nice, because uh, I, I, I was not entirely clear on this, is when we're talking about sports, are we talking about uh, general athletic competitions? Are we talking about athletic games which involve the scoring of points? Uh, and which of, which of those are we talking about? Because depending on the answers, we might have we might have different uh, different observations about what they do. I, but, I, su- I suspect we're talking about the second one as a subset of the first one. So I, either one is an appropriate answer. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess the the attraction is, on one hand, that there, there is a there is an aesthetic pleasure in excellent the excellencies of the body, uh, the excellencies of speed, and agility, and dexterity, and strength. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's pleasurable to watch someone do something well or just to do something well yourself um also i think and we're going to get more into this later i think humans are pretty innately competitive and uh games are a, a, a good way to you know to kind of mediate that 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 particular uh side of our instincts but uh i, I I was thinking about it last night, and I think the mo- the most basic reason is that part of, I mean, being part of being human is being in a body, and we all we all know the strictures of our of our embodiedness, and seeing someone push the limits of it and in 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 an excellent way is uh, I, I think in, in in some ways liberating uh, for us. To, to see someone in a body, but to leap so high or to run so fast, or whatever. I mean, what would y'all guys throw in? Yeah, I mean, I, I would add to that that you know I think that it's also a part of living a human lifespan. You know, a, an athlete is by necessity somebody in young adulthood. You know, mm-hmm. uh, someone whom young kids look up to. Uh, someone that the old folks can remember being. And I think that, you know, the focus on athletics, you know, is a, is one of the many ways that cultures, you know, throughout time, I know we talk about the cult of youth in the late 20th century, early 21st, and it's real. Uh, but in some senses, you know, folks have always looked at those people in the prime of young adulthood, 
uh, and enjoyed watching them, you know, like David said, exhibit strength, speed, agility, those sorts of things. So I think that, you know, not only embodiment, but also mortality plays into the enjoyment of sports. Michael, would you got anything? Yeah, I I think that one nice thing about sports is that you can kind of have it either way. You can watch a game and not have to think. You can just enjoy the movement Mm -hmm. and suspense. But if you want to think, you can turn... You can turn into a, a complete nerd about it. You can learn statistics, and you can make predictions and what have you. Mm-hmm. So sports offers the potential for intellectual activity without demanding it, and you can easily contrast this with an activity like reading fiction. If you read John Grisham, it doesn't demand intellectual activity, but there's not really even the potential <laughs> for it, <laughs> unless you unless you really want to get in. Uh, Unless you really want to get post-structural about it, uh, right? Or if you, or if you view it as sort of a sociological artifact, and you try to play sociologist with it. But, and but then on the other hand, reading Thomas Pynchon demands intellectual activity. You, you have yeah. to, you have to. So sports can combine the best of both of those worlds. And I, I think that is one leg up it has on art in a lot of people's minds. Well, I've uh, set up a false dichotomy here, perhaps between sports and art. Nathan, do you do you think that's a false dichotomy? Is it right, in some sense, to call sports an art form? You you and I were both sports fans of varying degrees in a graduate English department, in which there were quite a few people who were too cool for it. And uh, we're, obviously, we're not talking about grubs when I say that. Uh, he's never <laughs> acted disdainful toward toward my interest in anything. There but, are very uh, few things I'm too cool for. <laughs> Uh, is the implicit hierarchy here worthwhile, do you think? Uh, worthwhile, I don't know. I know it's got deep roots. You know, I, I know that uh, as far back as, you know, Plato's Republic at the very least, par- possibly back before then, you've got this definite hierarchy that gets set up between the active life and the contemplative life. And, you know, if you go one generation past Plato to Aristotle, you know, the height of an ethical, good human life in the Nicomachean ethics is the life of contemplation. Uh, so I think that on one level, you've got that old sense of the contemplative life is the apex of human activity. Uh, on the other hand, I think that, you know, one of the things that sports often get affiliated with, especially at a place like the university of Georgia, uh, is a culture that says, uh, if you can't measure something by, how many points you outscore your opponent by, uh, then it's not really worth spending your time worrying about. Uh, and you know, this sort of, I I won't say consumerist, but certainly a numbers driven competition driven reality exclusive of contemplation and collaboration and, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, I, I think that that has to be at least part of the reason why, not only the UGA English department, but a lot of folks who are, you know, dedicated to the life of the mind, uh, look with some disdain on sporting events and, you know, especially spectator sports. Uh, you'll find relatively few people who will say, you know, it is bad to play tennis. It is bad to play, uh, you know, it is bad to go running, but mm-hmm. you will find folks who think that it's a waste of time to watch every UGA football game in a season. Uh, David, would you add anything to that? It's kind of interesting. I, I, I went to, uh, well, whenever Katie and I go out to eat, we both grab a book. And very often my, my go-to book for, uh, for dinnertime reading is uh, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. So, <laughs> a, a glimpse into the mind of David Gr- uh, Grubbs. <laughs> not, not to mention the, the marriage of the Grubbses. <laughs> Well, you can you can open Burton at any place and find something interesting. Yeah, True, no, I, and I guess I've got small kids, so I can't imagine reading at dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's that's one of the reasons our relationship works so well is because uh, we, we you don't talk to each other. <laughs> No, no, we t- we talk plenty, but what we do is she reads her book, I read my book, and when I find a passage that's interesting, I stop her and read it aloud, and she there does the go. same thing. So, All right, enough of using grubs. Go on. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was reading Burton last night and thought, is there has he got anything to say about sports? Of course he does, because he's got something to say about everything. Um, and keep in mind, this is the this is the 1620s, and he's he he talks about sports primarily as a as a therapeutic activity something if you're if you're 
melancholy because you're idle and have nothing to do, um, sports is something to do. <laughs> if you're melancholy because you're too busy and and too stressed out by the by the, your your regular business, sports is a welcome diversion. Um, however, in in the section where he talks about sports, he doesn't make any distinction between going to watch uh, a bear baiting or a wrestling match or a play or going to look at the works of uh, Michelangelo or he doesn't distinguish between these between what we would consider sort of high cultural art pursuits and uh, what would have been the spectator sports of his day. And he talks about shuffleboard, which is hilarious <laughs> to me because now I'm imagining like these Renaissance guys playing shuffleboard. Do um, they play bocce ball too? I I have no idea. They might have had a different name from it. One of the problems of talking about his, history and sports is that the names that we call things by definitely shift over time. And if you don't know that, if you don't know what the name means, then pretty much you, you know people played something called that, but you don't know what it is. Anyway, I, I, I guess I guess my point is just that that for Burton, from a certain perspective about sports, um. He doesn't see a distinction between art and sports. They're both equally good for occupying your time or uh, diverting you from from more stressful business. David, do you think there's a difference between playing sports and merely watching them in person or, or on television? Assuming sports fans can achieve a sort of transcendent experience, and I think they can, just by watching a, a, a televised sporting event, what's the nature of that? Secondhand transcendence is it is it more noble in other words to play than to watch? Uh, I don't know about more noble. You certainly end up you know less sweaty at the end of the day. Um, depends on how much you yell at the TV. <laughs> it depends on whether or not you're actually you know out at a live game in the middle of summer. Um, I don't know more more noble more noble to play than to watch is definitely differently noble. Um, I, I think what you said earlier about about the the devoted sports fan, um, and and we can and we can look at this different ways. Um, in fact, well, once again, Burton talks about the the kind of sports fan who becomes devoted to it in a kind of wonkish scholarly way, researching the history of the sport, uh, knowing the names of everyone who plays it well, understanding all of the rules so that you can you can watch the game and kind of be the rules lawyer as you're watching. Um, that those kinds of things, uh, you know, the, well, you know, Burton talks about it, but that's 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 part of um, an experience of spectator sports that is, is definitely common today, especially if you've gone to any kind of sports blog. Um, they're just as intense about our subject as we are about ours. Um, so it, it definitely engages engages the mind. But um, also, uh, I, I remember thinking back to, uh, I, I think it was the Super Bowl, and you guys were talking about who you were going to root for, and I think you, Michael, said that you were going to root for the Saints because they had a better narrative. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, so... I think that that figures into it as well. I don't know that the athlete on the field necessarily thinks of himself as inside of this this sort of big plot that's playing out before him, but to the spectator and per, to a particular kind of spectator, um, it is like being there to watch an epic. And, you know, as you sort of sit with your godlike view, and especially if you're watching on television, a godlike view that, like, writes lines on the screens and so forth. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's it's like watching the rise and fall of empires. It's like watching, yeah, it's like watching an epic. For someone who doesn't uh, like sports, David, you just waxed awfully poetic about them. Thanks. It took yeah, a great I don't deal want of... to talk about falling empires right now. I... Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Especially not in the context of the Super Bowl. Um, nice. But I, I, I do like what you're saying, David. I mean that this is, you know, definitely something that gives people a sort of mythological object to behold. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and honestly, I mean that sort of beholding is something that I have tried to separate myself from in the last five years. 
uh, <laughs> since my son was born. And here's why. Here's why. I Yeah, I was dying I, to hear this. I, <laughs> you know, I, I still enjoy going to minor league baseball games. You know, I'll go and watch the Indianapolis Indians every time I'm up in Indiana visiting family. Uh, I'll watch the Washington Wild things in Washington, Pennsylvania. I really enjoy watching baseball, especially because it's something to where you can watch all of the details of how the strategy plays out. Uh, you can watch pitch selection. You can watch positioning of fielders. I mean, it really is an intellectual experience if you go to a live baseball game and behold it. What I've tried to move myself away from is that identification with even the Colts, you know, uh, and I realized, you know, obviously here recently I failed at that. Uh, and the reason is because I realized that my son is looking at me to see what it is that a man cares about and what it is that a man holds in disdain. And when I was at the height of my Colts mania before he was born, I realized that I kind of beheld among other things, public life, uh, you know, the, comings and goings of things that I could influence at, you know, UGA, not to mention in local government, not to mention in church life. I sort of held those at an ironic distance and snickered at them. But then when I watched the Colts, I was screaming at the TV and I thought, okay, is that what I want Micah to be watching when he is trying to figure out what it means to be a man? And the answer is no. So, you know, that's one of the things, although I haven't managed to extricate myself from it entirely, uh, it is something that I'm still struggling with to try to move myself away from the sports fanatic and move myself towards some, someone who takes serious things seriously. Nathan, did you yell at the TV during the Super Bowl this year? Uh, no, I didn't. I actually managed not to because Micah was in the room, and I, you know, I was very <laughs> conscious of that. Uh, what I did do is after he was in bed and you know manning through that interception that resulted in the game-winning touchdown. Uh, I turned the TV off and went and folded laundry. I didn't watch the end of the game. Angrily, I'm sure. <laughs> that was as folded as that laundry ever got. Well, I, I actually, I was fairly zen about it, and it's because I've been trying to separate myself from it for the last five years. <laughs> well, that makes a good deal of sense. Um, well, while we're talking about uh, Watching sports on television, Nathan, it occurs to me that sporting events may be a way of disproving or at least talking back to Walter Benjamin's seminal essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Can you talk for a moment about that essay and for about its implications for televised sports? I'll see. I think that, you know, televised football games are a way that Benjamin's ideas really play out. Uh, you know, his the, the section that I think you had in mind, and I'm going to hope that I'm right, uh, is a section where he talks about the medium of film as art. And he talks about how on a, in a stage production, the actors actually have to act because they have to communicate certain emotions and communicate certain ranges of experience across space to viewers who are looking at them from multiple angles. Whereas in film, uh, there is only the mechanical medium. There is only the camera there that is entirely dictating what the actor does. And in fact, you know, people who know about screen acting versus stage acting know that the most subtle movements are often the best when you're acting for television or movies, as opposed to the stage where you do have to communicate to the people in the back row. To cut you uh, off for a second, if our listeners want to see a great example of this, watch um, the Marlon Brando Streetcar Named Desire Yes. Where Brando is acting like a screen actor and everybody else is acting like a stage actor. Yes. Hmm. Very good example. Hmm. Uh, but at any rate, you know, one of the things, uh, I, one of the podcasts I listen to regularly is uh, NPR's On the Media, uh, which is a really smart podcast. I like it a great deal. But they were talking a few weeks ago about televised sports and about televised football in particular. And one of the things they noted is that in a study performed, I forget who performed the study, um, they actually got a stopwatch out, and in a three-hour NFL broadcast, the actual time in which players are playing football is roughly 11 minutes. Uh, so, I mean, it really <laughs> is an art form in which the producers of that show have to produce a narrative. Uh, they have to produce something out of nothing, basically. And it's amazing, you know, they were interviewing people who do the production, people who uh, direct the camera crews, who uh, direct the 
stats people who put the godlike statistic bars on the screen. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it really is just an amazingly complex and amazingly involved art form. And I think, you know, what Benjamin says is that you lose uh, that sense of being in the presence of a human being. But I would say that it's actually been reversed uh, in the age of televised football insofar as when I bought Mary a pair of Steelers tickets when they came to Atlanta a few years ago, uh, it was decidedly a lesser experience than it would have been to watch that same game on television. I, I agree with you 100%, Nathan. I didn't expect you to say that, though, because most people, I dare say, will at least claim that they prefer going to the game to watching it on television. So Absolutely, some... but, when, but when you talk to them about it and when you press them on it, what they are excited about is they are part of the Aura. experience. They always talk about a gestalt rather than about any particulars of the game. That's right. Now, mm-hmm. now I think that that's where you know, sort of civic pride, professional sports. And by the way, I think NCAA football is also professional sports. We might get into that later. Um, But I think that that's where it differs from something like minor league baseball, where being in the ballpark, watching the strategy of the game really is enriching in a way that watching it on TV is not. Uh, Also, very few people have intense loyalties to minor league teams. Well, yeah, and that's precisely why you can behold it with a certain intellectual detachment and enjoy it as an intellectual pursuit. Hmm. I used to love to go see the uh, Omaha Royals. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had the Johnson City Cardinals and the Elizabethan Twins when I was there in Tennessee, so it was great for minor league baseball. All right, uh, David, one theory I've heard a few places, and I'll, I'll admit this, it's not a few places, I heard I heard this theory on the television show Bones, <laughs> is that sports is uh, merely a way of taking out the aggression that would once have been reserved for the battlefield. Now, you talked about Freud last week, and you've certainly read more literary accounts of battles than either one of us. Uh, <laughs> do you think that idea has any merits? Um, well, uh, uh... Yes, absolutely. Um, the the oldest I get the oldest team and spectator sports that I can think of, um, or some of some of the oldest are uh, are forms of combat, wrestling and boxing, uh, both uh, both present in ancient Greece. Um, also, when we get up to Rome, you have uh, gladiatorial combat. Also, chariot races, which chariots were used in war, and and you know if you've ever seen Ben Hur, not that you know I'm going to plead that that's super authentic, but you can definitely <laughs> see how the 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 line between a race and a fight um, can uh, can get blurred. Um, zoom up to the Middle Ages, and you have uh, tournaments, uh, which were a way for the aristocratic warrior class to to display their strength. Um, to each other uh, and uh, to to onlookers in a context that doesn't disrupt society in the way that a war does. Um, it, it, it allowed them to be strong in the way that, that an aristocratic warrior class is supposed to be strong and display that strength, but but to do it without uh, without the anger, without the political, the 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 overt political kinds of things, but there still is a display of strength. I mean, uh, you know, to what extent was even the ancient Greek Olympics a way for the different uh, the different Greek cities to say, "We're really, 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 really strong. You probably don't want to pick a fight with us." Um, you know, tournaments may have you know could have could also serve that function, but it also uh, they ennobled the idea of restraint in strength. Uh, Medieval tournaments were at least ostensibly not about killing the other guy. Uh, they they fought with uh, with either blunted metal swords or sometimes they fought with ivory swords, um, and uh, and it was also sp- supposed to teach comp- uh, competition without rancor, without um, without hatred. You know, you had your battle. You know, you had your battle out on the field, and then once it was done, uh, you all go. You know, you all go to the party. Um, and I wonder to what extent those kinds of ideas have it continued on, especially in the British culture, 
and you end up with that uh, apocryphal quotation from Wellington that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. That uh, that there's this definite, especially in the British and uh, sort of the British culture, this definite connection between sport and battle, but not necessarily just in kind of a venting of of dangerous aggression, but also of a, of uh, teaching teaching uh, men to be in control during this aggressive competition, and also not to uh, given you know given to anger, which leads to hate, which leads to the dark side. <laughs> and David, what implications does this have for the Braves Cubs game I'm going to watch tonight? <laughs> um, and, and the Braves are going to win, by the way. Well, of course they are. It's the Cubs. <laughs> Well, it's a very different kind of sport than a tournament, obviously. Um, I, I, I can't imagine what kind of battle um, being able to hit a ball thrown at you, um, w w how that would figure into any any kind of combat. But uh, Have you watched the Star Wars movies? <laughs> it's hand-eye hand coordination, you know. Yeah, uh, okay, any battle that's actually ever happened in real life. Um, that, I thought the Star Wars battles happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <sighs> okay, they totally did. <laughs> All right, in our Earth. Um, but I, I guess what you would see in, in the baseball game tonight is is kind of the the epitome of control and strength and competition without rancor, um, but removed from the the display of martial styles, uh, martial kinds of strength. Um, that that you know we still value competition within a a strictly defined uh, well physical field, but also field of rules. And uh, we uh, we expect to see. Earnest displays of of competition alongside good sportsmanship, you know. Uh, well, unless we're at a hockey game, in which case we hope there's a fight breaking out because we don't understand what's going on, and you can't see the puck. Or unless um, the Yankees are playing, in which case it's way too much to expect good sportsmanship. <laughs> wow, wow, and wow. Nathan, uh, we've never, as best I can remember, talked about music on this podcast before, so now seems like as good a time as any. Baseball, in particular, has a long and fruitful relationship with popular music, and you've got the evergreen Take Me Out to the Ball Game, right, which started as a Tin Pan Alley song and now gets played uh, at least in the seventh inning of every Cubs game. Um, there's plenty of other examples. There's contemporary examples, there's nostalgic examples, and uh, we can list our favorites if you want. My favorite is... Uh, the Count Basie number, did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? But there's a lot of great uh, baseball songs. What do you think explains the relationship between athletics and music? And why does baseball in particular have so many songs about it to the exclusion of most other sports? Well, I think, first of all, uh, baseball has those songs because it was a spectator sport long before basketball and football were, uh, or at least, you know, let me put it this way. Baseball was a national spectator sport before the age of TV in ways that football and basketball weren't. You know, I, I realize somebody's going to write in to the show and say, UJ football has been going on since. Okay. I realize that. <laughs> Some meatballs going to tell us that I didn't say that. I, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think that, you know, because baseball translates well into radio discourse and translates well into mm. newspaper discourse, uh, it's something where you can actually break it down uh, by at bat. Uh, you know, you actually have a notation system, six four three double play and such. Uh, it's just been around longer, so people have had more time to write songs. I don't doubt that a hundred years from now, uh, football and basketball might catch up. And in fact, you know, in Indianapolis at least, uh, there are local bands who write Pacers and Colts songs. And you know, I could. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing them in my head right now. I won't trouble anyone by trying to sing them. Will uh, you do the Super Bowl shuffle for us? <laughs> no, I will not even on the radio. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, being a Cubs fan myself, you know, I, I have to think back to Steve Goodman, who was a folk singer. Uh, I guess kind of folk singer. That's he wrote uh, City of New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. And you never even called me by my name. 
he did indeed. He also wrote uh, Go Cubs Go, which remains a perennial anthem on WGN Radio. Uh, he also wrote A Dying Cub Fan's Last Request, which our listeners should uh, type into a YouTube search because it's a great, great uh, sort of spoken word folk song about Chicago Cubs baseball. Uh, but I think that, you know, simply because it's been around and because it does have that long 170 game season, uh, baseball lends itself to slow and deliberate meditation in a way that a 13 game football season doesn't or 16 game now. Uh, so, you know, and and the games themselves are a little more leisurely, right? Yeah, they really are. They really you can are. fall now, asleep for an hour during a baseball game and not, not really anymore, miss anything. You can't because they've always got something cranking over the PA. Uh, yes, <laughs> we should talk about that, the constant blaring of rock music at baseball stadiums. Oh, sure. Well, and I mean, <laughs> I, I, I actually don't mind it at much at some place like Turner Field in Atlanta. Uh, but when you go to certain minor league parks, and I mean, I love my Johnson City Cardinals, but they were the worst about this. The guy in the booth would blare rock music between innings and then it would just hit the pause button while they were playing <laughs> and then Aww. at the end you know at the next break after three outs the song would just pick up where you left off at the last switch <laughs> and i mean it was it was painful man it was painful i'm telling you i don't you. even like hearing this stuff on tv though like i you know i'm unemployed so i i sit at home all afternoon <laughs> and i watched basically every spring training game they aired on espn and okay. i'm already sick of hearing uh Oh, what's the what's the Harry Belafonte song they play all the the Deo Deo? I'm not gonna sing it. Oh, the Banana Boat song. Yes. Yes. Oh, how did that <laughs> song get associated with baseball? And why aren't they playing something? I, I don't know that at least relates to one of the teams that's playing. Well, and interestingly, of course, the uh, you know the song "Who Let the Dogs Out" got oh. its start at uh, a Mariners game. Which, by the way, folks, that song's about sex. It's yes, a, it it's is. It's a dirty song. There's no reason to play it at the baseball game. <laughs> yes, I, it is. <laughs> I actually have something to pitch in here. Oh. Um, weirdly enough, I actually have something to say. Um, it's at second hand, though. Um, my wife would go to the uh, the Rome-Georgia Braves games. They're, they're a farm league, I guess you call it. Sure. Um, and she would go to the Rome-Braves the Rome, uh, games. And these are these are young kids. A lot of them, you know, out of high school, just out of college, whatever. And they're just so happy that somebody's playing them, playing them some kind, paying them some kind of money to play ball. Sure. Um, but each of the each of the players on the Rome's Brave team picks a song that is his theme song. And when <laughs> he goes out to bat, they play that song. The Atlanta Braves do that too. It just yeah, bugs the amazing. snot they out of me. They do that. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Meh. Just displaying my ignorance. Um, but that's another use of that's another use of music, and it's another way that that they that they're using the I, I guess the production of the game to make a story by making characters with their own soundtracks. But, but it, it it doesn't make much of a story. If they played a dying Cubs fan's last request, then it would then it would make a story. <laughs> what it what it makes is this harsh kind of collage uh, effect. It, it's like somebody cut a bunch of hideous pictures out of magazines and pasted them all together. That's how the uh, the modern baseball game works. It's really well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, it's it's just I realize they're self-selected. Uh, but it's this awful ethnic stereotyping because I mean you know that if a white guy is stepping up to the plate, it's going to be hard rock or country. You know, if it's a black guy, it's going to be rap. If it's a Hispanic guy, it's going to be you know that hybrid of hip hop and whatever else goes into Spanish radio music. That I'm just showing my ignorance here. I realize, but I mean, you could close your eyes and guess what the guy at the plate looks like based on what you hear over the PA. Is it stereotyped if it's self-selected? Yes. Oh. <laughs> You're stereotyping yourself? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that people do play into the stereotypes that they didn't generate themselves. Have you guys never thought about, though, like what it would, what, how great it would be if when you entered your classroom before the period started, uh, 30 seconds of your favorite song blasted? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, w- I, I wish I could make that, that happen. 
<laughs> uh, actually, I have a buddy. Who, I, I believe he actually did that. He actually he actually set it up so that on his opening day of class, it played the crazy '88 theme from Kill Bill when he walked into class. Wow, which well, is so cool. David, it, uh, we're all literature students here, so uh, we had to get into literature eventually. Uh, what works of literature, old or new, feature a heavy sporting element to them? And what are the problems in attempting to describe something kinesthetic in mere words? Ooh. Um, I used well, a big or, word there, by the way, kinesthetic. I had to look it up. Yeah. Um, I already mentioned uh, tournaments. Um, and they're not just, they weren't just historical uh, events. They also. Are, are big set pieces in chivalric romance. Um, they're, they're chances for establishing character. Um, you know, the way, the way a, a knight fights is the way he is. Um, they're, they're chances to, uh, to describe lavishly uh, clothing and arming, uh, clothes, clothes and armaments and uh, the process of arming oneself. Uh, also, the the you know the ideals of chivalry, which okay, we, we we may quibble, but they did at least have some things that they wrote down on paper, even if they may have only existed in romances in certain scenes, but and not uh, in Mallory. And well, it it shows <laughs> it shows up in Mallory, but as, as as the ideal that everyone keeps missing, and so it's ironic. Yes. Um, but uh. In, in descriptions of tournaments, they're they they are very kinesthetic, to use your big word, Michael. Um, that you know the the descriptions of you know men getting knocked you know knocked head over heels off of a horse and uh, the 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 way you you know when you pull a man's helmet off, you can see how sickly pale he is and blood is running out of his nose, and uh, um, you know, j descriptions of, of, of wounds, of the physical impact of, 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 of blows, uh, you know, all, all those kinds of things work into uh, the chivalric romance and descriptions of attorneys. Um, one thing that people uh, would probably be less familiar is uh, there's actually a lot a heavy sporting element in um, Icelandic sagas. There's a game that they play called Kanatlikar. Um, um, which just means the ball game, uh, and and c whole communities. Uh, I Iceland at, in in the Middle Ages was mainly a bunch of isolated farmsteads, and so they would get together for whole farmsteads would get together for uh, kind of parties, feasts, but also to play games. And Kanatlikar was was part of that. Um, we don't we aren't really sure what the exact rules were. But it involves bats and balls, throwing balls, and tackling. Um, also, description. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's like football, baseball. Um, also, descriptions of lining up teams uh, opposite one another with players on opposing teams being paired off against each other in in a in a in a, in a kind of melee. Um, so, kind of footballish. Um, but within the stories, the ball game very often ends up at very, is very often used as either the way a feud gets sublimated. There's some argument going on between the people and uh, opposing teams, and eventually their personal dislike ends up spilling over into the game. And somebody throws the ball a little too hard and knocks someone's teeth out. Oh, and then it's on. Um... Yeah, so uh, it's 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 really kind of interesting that uh, Vikings are even uh, Vikings are still Vikings even when they're playing sports. Um, <laughs> right, our friends in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, yeah. do you know any uh, works of literature that have a heavy sporting element to them? Well, my personal favorite is uh, in Homer's two great poems. I mean, in the Iliad, of course, they have a. Uh, they host games uh, to celebrate. Uh, Patroclus when he dies uh, and then you know a little bit more extensively in the Odyssey when Odysseus is making his way roundabout back to Ithaca uh, one of the stops he makes is at the island of Phaeacia um, watch how you pronounce that one uh, and <laughs> 
you know, one of the things that's notable is that not only is Odysseus smarter than anyone in the Trojan War, not only is the man who's never at the lo- at a loss for words, uh, but he also beats all of the young men at the sprint, at the distance run, at the discus, at the shot put, at boxing, at wrestling. Uh, you know, Homer definitely sets up Odysseus as the Superman in that story. And the mm-hmm. Phaeacian games are definitely one of the places where that happens. And in fact, the the king offers, if I remember right, and David, you know, and Michael, catch me if I'm wrong on this, but I think he actually offers his daughter's hand in marriage. He's so impressed with Odysseus. And Odysseus has to tell him, you know, no, I'd, I'm actually headed home to my wife Penelope. Yeah, I think that is after the games, and it's probably he's probably being offered the daughter because of an aggregate of things. But certainly well, sure, the fact sure. that he's the most virile, uh, the most the, the the most virile, the the most manly of all of them. Boy, do I know how yeah. that feels? Doubt, doubtless plays into it. <laughs> well, see, I, here I, I was I was fearful, David, that I was conflating the Odyssey and Beowulf, so I'm glad I wasn't. <laughs> Uh, in, was that wealthy hour? Was that okay? I, go ahead, Michael. <laughs> in my era, um, the the most notable thing is uh, probably mid twentieth century Jewish American fiction, which is almost unthinkable without the sport of baseball, right? Sure. Uh, even if it's not specifically about baseball, like Bernard Malamud's The Natural, uh, it's going to be in the background of almost every Jewish American novel in the fifties and sixties. Hmm. There's also a book which I haven't read by Robert. Coover and I, of course I haven't looked up the um, the title I don't I don't remember it but it's it's a book I'm dying to read wherein a guy creates a baseball league on his kitchen table by doing a uh, complex series of either coin flips or dice rolls and uh, he ends up killing his favorite player who was imaginary so <laughs> wow. that, that sounds interesting and uh of course i've got sounds to bring, like D baseball it, it does and of course i've got to bring up john updike's rabbit run which has some uh, really beautiful descriptions of basketball games and, and the way he describes those is more um impressionistic than than narrative and uh th- this is where this is where you really see sports becoming a method of almost religious transcendence uh so yeah. Uh, Nathan, an unes- inescapable phenomenon in the sporting world is so-called hometown pride. I'm from Atlanta, and so I like the Braves, and I like the Falcons, and I like the Hawks, and I guess I would like the Thrashers if I understood hockey in any way. <laughs> and I, I don't like teams from New York, California, or Texas. That's, that's Can't blame just, you there. Yeah, that's just how it is. So my loyalties and hatreds I don't think are atypical. Uh, to like sports, by and large, means to support one team loyally and to participate in certain rivalries. Uh, Nathan, what do you think about this phenomenon? Do you think it's ultimately healthy? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, I, you know, in the last five years, like I said, I've watched very little Colts football. I've watched even less Pacers basketball. Uh, I have actually purchased more Colts and Pacers t-shirts than I did when I lived in Indiana. And it's largely to mark myself as from Indiana. Uh, I like to wander around in the South as a Hoosier in exile uh, rather than be, you know, simply not from around here. I like to be specifically not from around here. Uh, so, and since you, know, you don't have a, you know, since the Midwestern accent is not really an accent, you're not marked immediately by your speech. Right, although you, you know, seem to think I sound like I'm from Kentucky, so. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, you know, so I think that, you know, again, uh, going back to what I was talking about earlier, that is something that I have tried to excise from my own experience of sports. Uh, you know, I, it, and I'm not saying again that I have overcome this entirely. Uh, you know, just recently here, you know, the Tuesday after that awful, awful Super Bowl game, uh, I went into my rhetoric class at UGA, and one of my classmates who is from Connecticut, I believe. Uh, started jawing about the Colts choking and, you know, I immediately thought, ah, New Englander, no wonder she's so vicious. And then I thought, well, okay, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, just because Bill Belichick is evil doesn't mean that she is. Uh, you know, I doesn't help though. <laughs> no, it doesn't help. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things that, you know, I, I have struggled with and it's one of those things that frankly I think that a lot of Americans especially, I haven't talked to as many folks from outside of America about this topic. 
but we tend to get very relativistic about it. Uh, you know, if you take your political party a little bit too seriously, you know, if you're one of those Tea Party people, people will look down their noses at you. Uh, certainly, if you take your religion too seriously, uh, if you're a sort of fundamentalist, raving religious nut, people look down their noses at you. Uh, but if you're from Indianapolis and you hate people from Boston, that's all right. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 do, I do think it's one of those things, you know, in my own life, I have tried to excise for ethical reasons because I am trying to raise children uh, because I think there are better ways to be. So, I mean, I think that I am going to have to come down and say, ultimately, taken very far at all, it's not all that healthy. Although I have not cured myself of it, so I'm not going to throw the first stone. Uh, David, I mean, what do you make of all this? Well, I grew up in Alabama. And there, whether you're for uh, the Crimson Tide or the War Eagle, uh, is as important as where you go to church and who you vote for. Sure. Um, and it's usually something that gets passed down through your family. Um, yes, it is. Even if, even if your family um, didn't go to college at any of those places or didn't go to college at all, um, I had the blessing or curse, pick one, of being born into a family where on one side they were Auburn fans and on the other side they were Alabama fans. It's the Capulets okay. and the Montagues. Yes. So uh, depending on which family, uh, the, the, the Iron Bowl in Alabama, the, the, uh, the game between the University of Alabama and Auburn um, usually falls around uh, Thanksgiving. And so depending on which family I was with at Thanksgiving, um, it would they would be pushing intensely hard uh, for one particular side and just hating virulently on the other. And so uh, I, I, I got to say that as, as a kid, the whole that whole narrative of football um, was off-putting for me. I started rooting for the referees because they seemed like the only safe person on the field that I could cheer <laughs> Except for. Except everybody hates them, David. Well, I know, but then at least they hate them equally, you know? And, and he always gets to be right. Um, but uh, but also, um, I started to associate myself more with Auburn because they tended to be the underdogs when I was young. And so I, I started rooting for underdogs. And that was that that that's kind of become my my narrative. Who's the underdog in the game? I root for them. Um, but I but I, I now nowadays I I don't know that I feel as strongly about you uh, about it as as you do, Nathan, because it's such a I don't know. It, it feels like more of a human thing now, and I hmm. I, I I don't ever know. Anyone, even though my friends talked a lot of smack, I don't know that I don't know anyone who ever came to blows over it. Yeah, exactly. It's and it's all in good fun, right? Now I did have, I did have a girl in uh, in my youth group who I remember saying without any sense of irony whatsoever because she didn't have one of those, um, that whenever she thought of Auburn fans, she thought of non Christians. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> Wow, but most um, of, most of the time, right? These but, rivalries are just are just fun. Like earlier, I made fun. You know, I said that the Braves were going to beat the Cubs because I know that Nathan's a Cubs fan and I'm a Braves fan. But obviously, this doesn't reflect on either him or me. If mm -hmm. Minnesota had beaten had beaten the Saints and made it to the Super Bowl against the Colts, I am certain that uh, Nathan and our friend Sam Mulberry would have had a mock rivalry over who was going to win the Super Bowl. Am I wrong, Nathan? Oh, sure. I'm sure that would have been the case. So, well, I mean, there's a sense in which you can hate a team without actually hating any actual people, right? I mean, I don't like the Yankees at all, but I don't want Derek anything bad to happen to Derek Jeter. Yeah. Well, and I don't really want anything bad to happen to George Lucas or Robert Zemeckis. You know? <laughs> and Zemeckis comes up again. But I hate yes. on them a lot. 
I, I, I think there, I mean, I think there is a distinction that we can make here. Well, sure. That, and let, let me emphasize that I, you know, I, I don't think I was trying to make the claim that people actually come to blows or assassinate each other over sports rivalries. I'm sure it What I am happened. trying to say is that, yeah. that I, this goes back to my preference for tragedy over comedy, you know, back in our movies episode. I think that for myself, you know, I, I try to examine myself. I try to know myself, you know, mm. in the good classical sense. I tend to take too many things in life that I should take seriously with a sense of detached irony. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I allow myself to be a Colts fan with no irony at all, that is a form of hypocrisy that I shouldn't tolerate in myself. And moreover, I shouldn't present to my son and my daughter as a model for adult life. That is absolutely reasonable. A sense of irony in your family is, is I, You know, I, I still watch sports i still enjoy sports i still crack jokes about patriots people uh mm -hmm. but you know what i try to do is hold it at least an arm length and a half away from me because my tendency is to hold serious things an arm length away from me so well, i mean that's re that's really my ethical objection it's not that i think that people are going to murder each other because i'm a cub fan and you're a cardinal fan uh although from what my brother tells me about living in Wrigleyville in Chicago, it could happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do think that because irony so thoroughly defines the way that we treat so many serious things uh, that I shouldn't allow myself to be non-ironic about sports. Yeah. Well, and we, and we can't leave soccer fans out of it. Oh, yeah. soccer fans are – I mean – <laughs> that people have died over soccer soccer rivalries. It happens oh, all sure, the time. Sure. Fam famously crazy. <laughs> Those sophisticated Brits, by the way, they're they're so sophisticated, <laughs> so intellectually advanced over us. Yeah. I wish we were more like them. <laughs> On that note, we're uh, we're out of time. Uh, I don't have a tenth final question written, so I'm just going to ask for your final thoughts on sports and uh, their relation to the human life. And let's start with you, David. Um, well, I, honestly, you, you, you made me think a lot uh, over the past few days uh, in, in these questions. And I, I feel like I've, I've made my peace more with sports in, in the sense that I can see why they would be honestly pleasure, you know, why they're honestly pleasurable, honestly, uh, in, enjoyable and enriching for for many 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 people. Um, uh, I am occasionally one of those, if not regularly. But I, I I think it would be really good though to put to rest the whole sports is for the low brows, arts is art is for the high brows um, thing because I, I think in a lot of ways sports, especially spectator sports scratch a lot of the same human itches that uh that the arts scratch especially uh the narrative arts so i i think it would be uh probably healthy for uh, uh well okay frankly it would be healthy for english for english lit types to maybe hate a little bit less on the athletics Nathan? Well, uh, one thing that you know, I really didn't think of till I was driving to work today is the phenomenon of sports video games. And oh. it's one of those things I, I just kind of want to make it my last little thought here is that I think that sports video games really take some of the worst things about spectator sports and amplify them. And I would encourage folks, I mean, again, I, I might be taking my own experience and projecting it, but I do remember, I mean, getting so furious at sports video games when I played with people who are better than me. And the worst <laughs> thing about that is, you know, if I am playing basketball out at Kiwanis Park at Johnson City, I can run faster, I can jump higher, I can actually put forth physical effort if I am losing a game, if I'm getting frustrated. You know, at, in a video game, what can you do? You can push a button harder. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I, it's one of those things I think that people need to give some serious thought to uh, again, I don't think anyone's going to murder anyone else over a video game, uh, but I think that... Well, except for that guy in Korea that totally got stabbed because uh, he, some other guy thought he was cheating playing Halo. Okay, other than that guy, 
Uh, but I think that it's something, you know, certainly that we ought to devote some thought to uh, what happens when the taunting and the smack talk come into an arena where there is no actual physical outlet for that frustration. And I don't have any answers for that. It's just a question. Michael, won't you wrap us up? Yeah, well, um, I don't really have anything to add to any of that, except that I hope we've convinced maybe some skeptical listeners that sports has value, and we've uh, convinced some uh, fanatical sports fan listeners that maybe they're taking it a bit too seriously. Oh, and by the way, i, I got to relate one more thing, Michael, and then I'll turn it back for real. But uh, yeah, when, my dad, when my dad heard that we were doing sports this week, uh, he wanted me to note that uh, Thomas Aquinas's batting average went down significantly when the uh, University of Paris baseball team started throwing football ga- started throwing curveballs. I blew the joke. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Well, he, he was making fun of us because we're always talking about intellectuals. He's wondering whether we can actually talk about sports. <laughs> Intellectuals can talk about anything, man. That's our game. Well, David, you're hosting next week. What are we going to talk about? Well, uh, we've done we did science fiction and fantasy in the fall. Uh, we did horror. Um, I thought we would shift to one of my other uh, favorite genres, which is uh, the genre of uh, mysteries, detective fiction. Um, a lot of things that, that we can talk about there, notions of uh, law and order and the nature of human evil and all the rest of that. So uh, I think it'll be good times. Sounds good. Well, until then, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go look at our webpage, which is christianhumanist.org. From there, you can get to both the blog and the podcast. In the meantime, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying... Let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. And hold.